Thank you, Praise Band, for leading us in worship. And let me ask you, can you say that God has been faithful to you? I hope that you can. Thank you for reminding us that God is faithful to his promises. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. And so uh, let me ask you, have you ever done something that you knew was wrong even before you did it? I mean, it doesn't matter how old or young you are. We have a tendency to do things that we shouldn't, don't we? You know, I was reading an article recently about a 62-year-old man named Bernardo Alvarez. And Bernardo did something that wasn't very smart. He claimed that he was immune from snake venom. And so Bernardo lived in the Philippines, and there is a particular a viper, snake, not viper, but a snake that lives there called the Northern Philippine Cobra. Now, Northern Philippine Cobras are one of the most deadly snakes in the world. They're known to be. Uh, their, to- their, their venom is a toxin that causes a respiratory distress in its victim, and just one bite can be fatal. Well, Bernardo said he was immune to the uh, cobra's venom, and so one day, uh, one of those northern uh, Philippine cobras was slithering through his village, and Bernardo caught it. And he was holding it up, and he was showing it to people, kind of holding it casually, and then he did something that just amazed all the onlookers. He took that cobra, and he turned it toward him, and he moved to kiss it on its mouth. And when he did, that northern Philippine cobra lunged and bit him right on his tongue. And the moment that it happened, Bernardo screamed in pain. Within minutes, Bernardo collapsed and died waiting for someone to rescue him. Now, you might be thinking, well, you know, I hear that story, and I'd say I'd never pick up a a cobra, and I certainly would never pick up a cobra and try to kiss it. I wouldn't try to kiss any snake. I've got something else for a snake, but it's not a kiss. But, you know, we sometimes play with something that's more deadly, more dangerous, more destructive than a northern Philippine cobra. We think we're immune to its venom. We talk about it casually. And sometimes we participate in it casually. And it's the venom of habitual sin. It's the danger of deliberate sin in a Christian's life. How many of you have willfully sinned thinking you were immune from its consequences? Hebrews 10, 26 begs the question, does God forgive willful sin? Does God forgive deliberate sin? So if you've got your Bible open, I hope you do. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. And that verse says, For if we sin willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So what is that verse saying? Is that verse implying that God has no sacrifice for willful sin? Is God saying that if you ever sin after you've been saved, that you lose your salvation? Is that what that verse is saying? I mean, who in here would have the audacity to say that once you became a follower of Christ, that you've never sinned willfully since then? Who can say that? So what's this verse saying to us? There's some debate as to who this verse is written to. Some people think that this verse was written to non-believers or unbelievers. And some people think that it was written to believers. I happen to believe that this verse is written to believers. This verse was written to a group of Jewish Christians who had left Judaism... To follow Christ. And they were being tempted to go back to that old system of temple sacrifices. 
And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you want to follow the old way, you need to remember that those animal sacrifices cannot take away sin. And you need to know that there is no sacrifice for deliberate sin under the old system. So in the Old Testament, a willful sin was referred to as presumptuous sin. It was a rebellious sin. It was a defiant type sin. And in Numbers chapter 15, verse 30, the Bible says, But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord. And he shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments. And that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. So the Jewish reader would read that and think there is no sacrifice for presumptuous, willful, deliberate sin. But the writer of Hebrews is drawing a contrast. There's a contrast between Christ and the old system. When Jesus died for my sin, when Jesus died for your sin, he covered all of our sin. We just sang about it. He covers all of our sin. He wasn't talking about losing your salvation. Now I want to share with you how I know that to be true. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, the Bible says, By that will, God's will, by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One sacrifice for all sin. And then he uses the word we. We have been sanctified. He included all those people who read that, that he believed them to be believers, authentic believers who had been sanctified and saved. So we know he's talking to believers And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, he makes this statement. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. For by one offering, he has perfected forever. You cannot be perfected forever if you can lose it, can you? Perfected forever. And then I want you to look at another verse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18, just Just right near our our focal passage. He says, now where there is remission of these, meaning sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. When your sin is covered by the blood of Jesus, there is no need for another offering. You understand that? He has paid it once for all. There is no other need for another offering. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he died to cover your sin. Your sin is who you are. You are a sinner by nature. That's who you are. That's the root of my problem. That's the root of your problem. You are a sinner. Would you agree with that? And because we are sinners, we sin. And so our sins is the fruit of our problem. Our sin is a root. Our sins are the fruit. And Jesus died to cover your sin and your sins. The root of our problem and the fruit of our problem. So... If Jesus died for our sins and I can't lose my salvation, what warning is the writer of Hebrews given to you and me this morning? And let, and let me just back up for a minute. I want to just demonstrate this. When Jesus said he died for our sin, who you are, in 1 John 1, 7, 1, 7, it says this. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all what? Sin. That's who we are. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says... In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of what? Sins. 
My sin has been paid. That's who I am. And my sins have been paid. Covered in full. So if I can't lose my salvation, what is this warning all about? What is, what is the writer trying to demonstrate to you and me? Does it mean I can just live any old way I want to now that I'm under grace? Is that what it means? Well, yes and no. When the Spirit of God lives in you, He makes you a new creation. He gives you new desires. He gives you new wants. He changes what you want to do. So yes, you do get to live the way you want because you don't want to sin anymore. You don't want to uh, get drunk anymore. You don't want to look at pornography anymore. You don't want to commit adultery. You don't want to live in habitual sin. Why? Because God changes your wants. He makes you different. Everybody okay? Now the Holy Spirit convicts you when you sin. And if you are a believer, you know that. And the Holy Spirit corrects you when you sin. And if you are his follower, you know that. So it's not that I can't sin anymore. That's not the point. It's I cannot sin anymore and enjoy it. Because the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin. And that's what it means to be sanctified. It means that God is constantly reshaping you and reshaping me into his image. To be like him. So this is not about sinless perfection. It's about a steady direction being transformed into Christ's likeness. So that's what this passage is about. But I want to give you some warnings here. There are two things I want you to see this morning about habitual, deliberate sin. Number one, I want you to see the, the development, the de- development of deliberate sin. I want you to think about how sin develops in the life of a Christian. Hebrews 10, 26, it says, For if we sin willfully. By the way, isn't all of our sin willful? We do sin willfully. But some sin is premeditated. You've planned it out. And that's a willful, presumptuous type sin. How does that happen? Well, James 1.14 kind of gives you the development of how sin progresses in your life. Look at James, or just write it down, look at it later. James 1.14 says this, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. Sometimes desires is translated lust. He's, you are tempted by your own desires and then you're enticed. Everybody see that progression? Deliberate sin begins with a lust or a desire. And by the way, lust is not always sexual. Sometimes it's social. Sometimes people just long to be accepted by the world more than they long to be holy. And so sometimes our desire is for social acceptance. Sometimes our desire is for just stuff. We want wealth and we want possessions. We can have all kinds of desires that will entice us. So this morning, what is your desire? What is it that drives you and motivates you to do things? Your desire, if it's not governed by the Spirit of God, can lead you down a path of some serious destruction. So then in James 1.15, the very next verse, it says, Then when desire has conceived, because when you have a desire, it's going to conceive a sin. And it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And then James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So many people think that they can sin with impunity, with no consequences. And James says, do not be deceived. Sin leads to death when it is full grown. So he's given us this warning. 
Sin begins with a desire, and then when that desire conceives sin in our heart, it gives birth to sin, and when that sin is full grown, it brings forth death. Now, I didn't make that up. I read it right out of the Word. I think that's why David said in Psalm 19, 13, King David said this. He prayed this basically to God. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. Then I shall be innocent of great transgression. Do you know what presumptuous sin is? Presumptuous sin is committing a sin and thinking there are no consequences. It's like you say, you know, I thought about it and I'm going to commit this sin anyway. I'm just going to do it. Either you think there will be no consequence or you think you will get away with it or you don't care about the consequences. I can only imagine King David walking out on his porch one evening, overlooking the horizon, the sun setting, and in the back of his mind, he's thinking about all of his military troops there in battle while he's enjoying the luxury and pleasure of the palace. He's thinking, you know, I should probably be out there with my guys. I shouldn't be here because that's where most kings were. They were in battle with their troops, but David was sitting in luxury in the palace. And maybe he was thinking to himself, you know, I really shouldn't be here. I really ought to be where my armies are in battle. They're suffering in battle. And here I am just taking it easy. And maybe he thought I ought to go. But maybe he thought, you know, tomorrow morning when I get up, I'm going out to battle. I'm going to go out with my men where I should be. And maybe as he began to think that thought, he gazed over and then he looked and he saw a beautiful lady bathing in the setting sun. And maybe he thought, well, you know, I wonder who she is. What happened? A desire. And he began to inquire, who is this? He couldn't get her off his mind. He said, who is this lady? The servant says, well, that's Bathsheba. You know, that, she's the wife of one of your most loyal soldiers, Uriah. And David thought, man, I just need to put that thought out of my mind. But he began to meditate on it, I think. And that desire began to, to plant a seed and give birth to a, a sin in his life. And he began to lust after her. And he calls her over, and y'all know the story, how that kind of unfolds. And it wasn't that David didn't know she was married. He did. It wasn't that David didn't know that he was going to commit an egregious sin against Uriah, one of his loyal servants. He did. But at that moment, for some reason, David decided that his temporary pleasure was worth committing adultery. At that moment... He felt like a night of ecstasy was worth losing his reputation. Maybe at that moment he felt like a, a night of sensual pleasure was worth bringing disrepute on the name of Christ. Or maybe he just thought he could get away with it. That would be presumptuous, wouldn't it? To think that we can get away with sin. That we can just sin and there will be no consequence because we're all under grace. So we can sin with impunity. You know, two men were discussing a prominent... And, prominent and intelligent man who had kind of fallen into sin and lost his influence and his testimony. And these two men were talking and one said, you know, I don't understand it. He's such an intelligent man. He's so smart. How in the world did he think he could get away with it? And the other man said, without blinking, sin makes us stupid. How else can you explain the actions of King David, the man after God's own heart becoming a murderer and an adulterer? How else can you explain the decisions that Samson made in the book of Judges? How else can you explain Peter denying Jesus in the moment of crisis? Because sin makes us stupid. And we do stupid things. 
You know what I found out about us? And I don't know, maybe you don't feel this way, but I found out about us. If we want to commit a sin, we can rationalize and justify just about any behavior we want to participate in. If we work hard enough. Would you agree with that? We're just good at it. Presumptuous sin is planning out a situation that places you in temptation. And then, eventually, you will commit the sin you've been thinking about. That's a danger. And we ought to understand the development of sin in our lives. And so in Romans 13, 14, the Apostle Paul said this. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Do you know how you avoid that development? Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. And when you contemplate deliberate sin in your mind, you are making provisions for the flesh. You are getting ready to give birth to sin in your life. And so we don't need to put our path, put ourselves in the path of temptation and desire. So there's a development of deliberate sin, but there's also a danger of deliberate sin for the follower of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon made this statement. He said, you say that you can handle your secret sins, that there's no one hurt by them. But you may as well ask the lion to let you put your head into its mouth. You cannot regulate his jaws. Neither can you regulate sin. Once done, you cannot tell when, it will be when you will be destroyed. You may put your head in and out a great many times, but one of these days, it will be a costly venture. Adrian Rogers used to say, you know, sin thrills and then it kills. It fascinates and then it assassinates. That's how sin functions in our lives. If we think we can sin without impunity, we're mistaken. And when you and I sin deliberately, there are consequences. And I want to give you four this morning. Four consequences of deliberate sin. Four, da four dangers. Number one, we defame the name of Jesus. I'll look back there at Hebrews 10.29. It says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy of who, uh, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? When we sin willfully, when we sin presumptuously, we treat the precious Son of God as if He's worthless. I think it was John MacArthur who kind of told this story. He said, picture a man lying in a gutter somewhere, wounded, sores all over him, hungry, destitute, homeless. And then all of a sudden, a kind, compassionate, generous man comes by. He says, hey, I want to pay your hospital bill. He sends it to the hospital, pays all of his bills, his medical bills, so he gets well. He said, I want to put you in a nice, comfortable home. I want to pay all your financial needs so that you can live in comfort. What would you think if that man in the gutter spit in that generous man's face, cursed at him, and then told everybody else that his, his, his offer was worthless? He said that would not be as bad as trampling Jesus underfoot. And so we have a warning. We do not want to defame the name of Jesus. The second thing I want you to notice is that when we sin deliberately, we defame the name of Jesus and we discredit the work of the cross. Look, at, look back at Hebrews 10, 29 for a moment. Willful sin is counting the blood of the covenant by which you are sanctified a common Thing. That's what happens when we sin deliberately. We are not availing ourselves to the provision that Jesus made for us on the cross. 
Jesus died to cover our sin and our sins. And we are discrediting what he did for us. When Jesus died for your sin, he set you free from the power of sin in your life. You know, slavery is something that's kind of a primary topic these days. But nobody talks about the slavery that has, has gripped more people than any other type of slavery. And it is the slavery to sin. Sin does not discriminate. It doesn't matter what your social status, your academic status, your economic status. Sin enslaves people from all walks of life. It's indiscriminate. Some people are enslaved to alcohol. Oh, they think they've got a handle on it, but it has a hold on them. Some people are enslaved to drugs. Some people are enslaved to their lust and their pornography. Some people are enslaved to their own self-righteousness. They think they deserve God's grace. They think they deserve God's goodness because of how righteous they are. And so you can be enslaved by your own righteousness. Do you know some people are enslaved by their inability or unwillingness to even go to church? You say, well, how can you say that? Did you know that Hebrews 10.25 is the verse right before it talks about willful sin? And you know what Hebrews 10.25 says? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. In the very next verse, it talks about willful sin. And some people are willfully, they could come to church, they won't come to church. They are willfully violating the word of God. Some of you are enslaved by unforgiveness. You think that you're holding someone else captive by your unwillingness to forgive. And that person you think you have in a cage is not that other person, it's you. I mean, the other person that you think you're holding in a cage, you think they're staying up at night thinking about what they've done. They're not. And they're not thinking about you. You are staying up at night and you are staying in the cage. And that's what sin does. It holds us captive. And so Jesus said in John 8, 34, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. You are held captive. But when Jesus came, he set you free, and he said you will be free indeed. You know what you're free from? You're free from the power of sin. You don't have to sin. You can choose not to sin. You don't have to sin. He doesn't set you free so you can sin. He sets you free so you can live for him. That's why he set you free, to live for him. Listen to Romans 6.22. Romans 6.22 says this. But now, having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have fruit to holiness. And the end, everlasting life. You have fruit to holiness. God has set you free to be holy. God has set you free to live for him. Does that mean you're going to never sin? No. It doesn't mean that you'll never sin. But it does mean that God has given you the power to resist sin through the cross. He's given you the ability to, to say no to sin. It's a choice. But if you are not a believer, you have no choice but to sin. You have no other recourse. You have no other power that will enable you not to sin. And so when you sin deliberately, you discredit the power of the cross at work in your life. Number three. When you sin deliberately, you defame the name of Jesus, you discredit the work of the cross, and you desensitize yourself to the Holy Spirit. Look back at verse 29. It says, when you sin willfully, you insult the Spirit of grace. Did you know that the Holy Spirit can be insulted? I mean, 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the Spirit. 
You know what it means to quench something, right? It means you, you, you take away its power. In, in Ephesians 4.30, it says, Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And when you habitually and deliberately sin, you grieve the Spirit of God. You quench His work in your life. You're no longer sensitive to the Holy Spirit's power and work in your life. How many of you have ever been to the dentist? How many of you love going to the dentist? Anybody? I had to go to the dentist recently because I broke a tooth. And I went to the dentist and uh, he looked at it and he said, you know, I'm going to need to numb you up a little bit so I can work on this tooth. I said, no, no, we don't, we don't, we're not going to numb me up. Just do what you got to do. He said, no, you're not going to be able to take this. I need to go ahead and numb you up a little bit so I can do this work. I said, let's just try it without it. I think I can endure a little bit of pain for just a few minutes and then I can walk out feeling my face. So let's just try it. And so he did it that way. No anesthetic. But do you know what habitual sin is to our soul? Habitual sin is like an anesthetic to the soul. Sin numbs your spiritual senses so that you don't feel the Holy Spirit's conviction in your life. Habitual sin is like the lidocaine of your spiritual senses. You just kind of go through life and you're numb. You're numb to the Spirit of God. You're numb to the Word of God. And you don't even know it because you can't sense it. Habitual sin anesthetizes your spiritual sensitivity so you don't even sense God around you. Some of you are living in habitual sin. Do you want to know why your quiet times are dry? Do you want to know why you don't see the power of God in your life? It might be because you're living in habitual sin. Habitual sin is like the lidocaine to the soul. You know, when a dentist is drilling on your tooth, he's doing some damage there. I don't know if you know that. You can't feel it because you're numb to it. Some people walk out of the dentist's office after he's been drilling and working in their mouth and they walk out and they say, well, I didn't feel a thing. Well, no, you didn't feel anything. Because you were numbed up. You know, some people can sit in a service where the Holy Spirit's working and you can feel the power of the Holy Spirit and they can walk out and they'll say, I didn't feel a thing. Why? Because something has numbed their senses to God. You know, there's some people who are, who are numb to the presence of God. They're numb to the Word of God. Oh, they read it, but it doesn't penetrate anymore because they have some, uh, habitual sin in their life. And you can write this little statement down. You cannot live in sin and walk in the Spirit at the same time. You cannot live in sin and walk in the Spirit at the same time. It's impossible. And so when you and I sin, we defame the name of Jesus. We discredit the work of Jesus and we desensitize ourselves to the Spirit. I'm going to give you one last point. We also invite God's discipline when we sin. Hebrews 10.30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, he says, The Lord will judge his people. God disciplines his children. He is not a permissive parent. If even, even in the Old Testament, God said in Deuteronomy 8.5, You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. He disciplines you because he's a loving parent. Who does God discipline? He disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those who belong to him. He doesn't discipline those children who aren't him. His. He disciplines those who belong to him. Uh, you, you got your Bible open to Hebrews. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Hebrews 12, 6. Hebrews 12, 6 says, 
For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines. And then he uses another word, and scourges every son he receives. That's a hard word, isn't it? Scourge. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? If you are without chastening, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those who belong to him. It's right there in Hebrews. So why does God discipline us? He disciplined Moses. He disciplined David. He disciplined Jonah. Why does he discipline us? Look in verse 10 of Hebrews 12. For they, your earthly fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us as best as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our profit. Why? That we may be partakers of his holiness. Why does God discipline you? Because he wants to make you holy. God is holy and he wants to make us holy. God is holy and he hates sin and God is holy and he hates sin in the life of his children. And so what God is saying is, if you're living in habitual sin, I am going to deal with that sin in your life. How does God discipline us? How does God deal with that sin? I'll give you a few ways. One, God sometimes just lets you suffer for it. Now, I'm not saying that all suffering is because of a sin. I'm just saying that we do know that some suffering is directly related to sin. Uh, Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For if he sows to his flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. He will let us suffer the consequences for our sin, and that will make us suffer. Did you know that some discipline, this is going to be a hard statement, but do you know that some discipline can lead to a physical death? Now, people don't like to talk about that much. But in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, it says this. John writes, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he, God, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. And then he makes a strange statement. But there is sin leading to death. Now you're going to ask me, what sin is that? I, I can't tell you what that is. I can tell you I've seen it in Scripture. Did you know in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira committed a sin leading to death because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And God took them out because of it. There's another example. I do want you to look at this. Turn back over to 1 Corinthians. It's back toward the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to give you another example of what that looks like in a believer's life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it tells the story of a man who was living in deliberate, habitual sin. This man was having an adulterous affair with his stepmother. That's pretty egregious. And so Paul said this man should be dealt with because he would not confess his sin. He would not stop doing it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, this is the story. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And what he's saying is there is immorality in the church. And such sexual immorality is as not even named among the Gentiles. He's saying there's such a, an egregious sin in the church that even lost people don't act this way. And yet you've got a believer in the church that is, has his father's wife, his stepmother. 
So Paul believed this man was an authentic believer, but he believed he was living like a lost person. So then look, then look at verse 5. Y'all can read the whole context later. But look at verse 5. Paul said, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul said, Deliver this man to Satan. Let Satan take him out. Let Satan kill him physically. But his soul will be saved. Did you see that? Because he didn't lose his salvation. He, he was going to lose his life if he didn't repent. That was the danger that he was in. Now you might say, yeah, but at least he gives, gets to go to heaven. Yes, he does get to go to heaven. But not without a cost. It costs something. He defamed the name of Christ. He discredited the work of the cross. He desensitized himself to the spirit. And he was disciplined by God. There was a cost. And you know, God might not take you out. He could, but he might not. You know what God might do? You know what God does to some people sometimes? He doesn't take them out of this world, but He takes them out of ministry. You lose your opportunity to minister in some ways. So maybe God has a plan for you to use you in some spiritual leadership, but because you will not give up some sin in your life, He can't use you that way. And so He doesn't. He just puts you on a shelf. There are so many people who are no longer serving Christ because they've refused to give up some things in their life and so they can't be used by God anymore. They've lost their spiritual influence. Do you know anybody that way? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul said, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. Why? Because when I have preached to others, I, that I, I might myself become disqualified. You know that word disqualified? If you go look it up in the Greek it gives the idea of being cast away. That's what it means. Being cast away. It means put aside. Paul said, I don't want to be put aside. I don't want to lose my ministry. I don't want to lose my influence because I will not give up some sin in my life. So I bring myself into subjection. You can lose your testimony and you can lose your influence. So God will deal with our sin. I'm going to give you one final thing about discipline. God will discipline you and he will also judge you. You say, wait a minute, I, I thought my sin was covered. Your sin is covered. But in Hebrews 10.30 it says, again, the Lord will judge whose people? His people. His people. He's not talking about the great white throne judgment where the lost people will be judged. He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ where Christians will give an account for everything that we've done. If you are a follower of Christ, your sin issue has been settled at the cross of Calvary. But the Bible also teaches that there is a judgment seat of Christ where every Christian will give an account for everything they've done in the flesh, in the body, whether good or bad. You say, well, where is that at? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.10. You can write it down. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he's done, whether good or or bad. We will all give an account of what we've done with the spiritual resources that God's given to us. We will give an account of how we've lived on this earth. You know, the Bible says that your life will be fire tested. And those things that endure the fire, that are pure, you will be rewarded for. But those things that aren't will be burned like straw. In 1 Corinthians 3.13, I'll give you the context. 1 Corinthians 3.13, it says, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And if anyone's work which he has built 
on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. That's encouraging, because that's the promise. We will be saved, but we're also going to be held accountable. You say, well, as long as I get to heaven, it really won't matter. Oh, yes, it will, because you missed the point. You see, when you get a reward for the things that you've done in this life, that reward is not for you. Because the only reason that you could do it is because of what Christ did for you. And you get to take that crown, that reward. And the Bible says that one day we'll be able to worship at Jesus' feet and cast those crowns at His feet. It's a part of how we'll worship Christ. And some people will not be able to worship as well as others because they won't have as many rewards. It's not a pride issue. It's a worship opportunity. Kind of reminds me of the movie uh, Schindler's List. Anybody ever seen that? Schindler's List, Oscar Schindler was a businessman and he was profiting off of the Jewish labor. I mean, it was free, cheap labor for him. He would pay the German government to have these people work in his factories and he was making a lot of money that way. And it was all about the money for him. But then one day it, it dawned on him what Hitler was doing to the Jewish people. And he began to change his attitude toward the Jews. He wanted to help them. He wanted to protect them. So then he began to pay more and more money to pay for more Jews to work in his factory. He was losing money. He wasn't able to make any money like he was before because he was giving it away to, to protect these Jews and have them work in his factories. He saved 1,100 Jews by doing that. He kept them out of the German concentration camps. And at the end of World War II, Oscar Schindler, I don't know if you know this, but Oscar Schindler is, 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 is uh, recognized in Israel because of what he did to protect the, the Jewish people. There's a tree planted in Israel for him. He's buried in Israel, if I'm not mistaken. But you know, at the end of that movie, right at the, as the war is coming to an end and Oscar Schindler realizes he's got to leave because he doesn't want to be considered a war criminal and the Jews were saying, no, you're not a criminal to us. And they wrote letters giving a defense for him. But as he was beginning to leave, he begins to weep and he says, but I could have done more. I could have given more. I had so many other resources I could have sold. I could have paid for more and I didn't do it. I think that's what the judgment seat of Christ is going to be like for us. We're not going to look at all that we did. He saved 1,100 people, but that wasn't what concerned him. What concerned him was he didn't do more. I think when we stand before Christ, it's not going to be all that we did for Christ. It's going to be what we didn't do that we could have done. And I think we're going to weep when it comes to that time in our lives. And I think that's why the Bible says he will wipe every tear from our eyes. I think that's what it's going to be like, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, you've heard a lot in this message, and I know it's kind of intense. But I want to give you a thought. How do you respond to a message like this? Number one, you need to consider the danger of deliberate sin and the cost of it. You know, a captain of a ship one day was sailing between two harbors and it was a rocky coast. And one of the passengers said, is it dangerous to travel this way and to navigate these waters? He said, oh, absolutely. Absolutely it's dangerous. He said, are you afraid? He said, no, I'm not afraid. He said, why are you not afraid? It's so dangerous. He said, well, because I put out into the, the depth of the sea and I stay away from the rocks. That's the message for you and me. We need to launch out into the sea of obedience and stay away from the rocks of sin. Secondly, maybe you are struggling with some habitual sin and you don't know what to do about it. David gives you the answer in Psalm chapter 32. This is what David said. David said, when I kept silent, my bones grew old 
through my groaning all day long. Do you hear that? Do you, feel, you see the intensity of him trying to hide his sin and what it was doing to him physically? And then in verse 4, he said, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. I felt God's conviction. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He was losing his strength. He was battling with the sin in his life. But then in verse 5, he said, I acknowledge my sin to you. In my iniquity, I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Do you see the love of God for you? He is a forgiving God, a gracious God who forgives. David said, I acknowledge my sin. I didn't hide what I did. Not only did you forgive me, but you removed this, the guilt from my life. And that's what sin does to us, doesn't it? It makes us guilty. He says, I will remove it. So maybe today you just need to come say, God, first of all, protect me from presumptuous sin. Secondly, deliver me from presumptuous sin. And maybe the third thing, maybe you're here, you don't know Christ, you're not his child. And maybe today you need to come surrender to Christ. Let me invite you to do that. Those are important decisions that you need to make. We see the consequences. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges and Thank you for the confidence that you give us in your promises. Thank you for the comfort that we have that you will forgive us when we confess our sins and that we come clean before you. And right now, Lord, I don't know what people are going through. I don't know what goes on in the secrecy of their homes or their heart. You do. I just pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us right now. Help us to come clean before you to confess our sin so that we can once again sense your Holy Spirit's presence and work in our lives, so that we can understand your word and it can... Uh, encourage us and convict us as it should. Lord, help us to be careful how we handle the name of Christ and the, and the work of the cross and we don't ever discredit those things. So Lord, right now as your Holy Spirit speaks, I just pray you help us to be obedient, not to take things lightly, but to respond how you lead us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as we stand together, would you stand as we sing? And let me just encourage you to respond as the Lord leads you. To every question, the one solution.